from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Diversion Audio. A note. This episode contains descriptions of violence that may be disturbing for some audiences. Please take care in listening. This series is based on historical characters and real events. Some dialogue has been imagined for dramatic purposes when no primary source material is available. Virginia Hall's prison cell in San Juan de las Abadesas, a small town in the northeast of Spain, was something out of a nightmare. Cold, damp, claustrophobic, with no company besides the rats. Virginia thought back and contemplated whether she could have done anything differently, playing the scenarios over and over in her head. If she tried to run from the Spanish police in the train station, they likely would have shot her dead. Besides, she never would have gotten away, being weak from her recent mountain trek and with a blistered, swollen leg stump. <sighs> Virginia imagined the moment in which the Spanish police would hand her over to the Gestapo and their glee at having finally captured the limping lady. She knew the Nazis wouldn't risk letting her escape. They'd transfer her to a secret facility, interrogate her, torture her, and kill her. Or sometimes the Nazis kept their prisoners alive and attempted to leverage them against the Allies. Months of psychological torture would give way to more physical punishments. Dousing with freezing water, electric shocks, beatings and cutting. 
This was the way of the Nazis. But Virginia's capture was too big a threat to the British. She knew too much, and the Nazis could assume that the British would change battle strategy once the SOE, Virginia's intelligence agency, discovered she'd been captured. Virginia's information would be useless, and so she was as good as dead. I want to speak to the American embassy. I'm an American. Her nationality was maybe the one thing that could save her. In late 1942, Spain was still considered technically neutral in the war. The Spanish dictator Francisco Franco had offered Hitler Spain's allegiance in return for aid in nation-building. There was a division of Spanish volunteers fighting for the German army, but Spain still remained reluctant and fickle. Franco's regime is ideologically complex and people still fight over whether or not it was fascist or just really authoritarian and traditionalist. Regardless of how anyone's individual sees it, the regime was very friendly to Nazi Germany and especially fascist Italy because Italy and Germany had backed Franco in the Civil War. So Spain tended politically to like the Axis powers a lot. That's Andrew Orr, the historian who runs Kansas State University's Institute for Military History. We've heard from him in previous episodes. Once the U.S. enters the war, Spain's position becomes even more fraught. The Atlantic is now overwhelmingly in Allied hands. It was already under British control. And Spain was dependent on being able to buy food from Latin America. They were buying food from Argentina. They were buying food and getting oil from Mexico. And the United States had tremendous influence in Latin America. If the United States leaned hard on Mexico and Argentina, the U.S. had the wherewithal to choke off Spain's ability to buy anything in Latin America. And so the Spanish government knew it needed to avoid an open breach with the United States. And so Franco created this complex diplomacy in which he was neutral in the war between America and Britain versus Germany, was non-belligerent but pro-Axis in the war against the Soviet Union, and then claimed to be pro-American in the war against Japan. So Franco flirted with helping the Nazis, but usually not at the expense of hurting their trade relationship with the United States. But maybe Virginia's American citizenship was just enough to override any bribes the Nazis were making for her capture. Hello? Do you hear me? If anything happens to me, there'll be hell to pay. Shut up! We contacted them. You'll get your answer soon. All she could do now was wait for the cavalry to arrive and hope they were faster than Robert Alesh and Klaus Barbie. I'm Stephen Talty, and from Diversion, this is Good Assassins Season 2. Being killed would be the easy part. Being tortured would be the hard part. Our intel suggests... She is behind many of the prison bricks all over the country. She is dangerous. So sabotage, 
plus a little espionage, paramilitary operations, make things blow up. A message for Captain Barbie. I believe I have found the nest of the limping lady. Episode 8, The Return of the Limping Lady. Yes? Dr. Rousset? Yes? Please, open the door, Dr. Rousset. You are wanted for questioning. Back in Lyon, France, the Gestapo had appeared at the office doorstep of Dr. Jean Rousset, Virginia Hall's trusted accomplice in the resistance. It was time for the Nazis to act on the information given to them by Robert Alesh, who had infiltrated Virginia's resistance cell known as Heckler by posing as a priest aiding the freedom fighters. Dr. Rousset was the first man on their list. We know you are in league with this woman. It would do you well to tell us where she is. The Nazis showed the doctor a wanted poster of Virginia, her likeness sketched out in remarkable detail. Dr. Rousset had noticed the posters going up around Lyon the day before and knew that somebody somewhere had given up Virginia. But apparently, they didn't know everything. If they did, they wouldn't be interrogating him at all. You recognize her? Yes, I do. There is no denial? No, I'm not denying anything. Except uh, I didn't know she was this uh, limping lady. She was a patient of mine. What was her name? You have her name. It's there on the poster. Marie Mona. <coughs> ah! Oh. Interrogation is oh. not something that I grow tired of, oh. Dr. Rousset. We may take as much time with this as you like. But even after hours of intensive questioning, Rousset never broke. He claimed that he only knew the limping lady as a patient who had requested care. He provided her nothing but treatment, just as he would anyone, and he had nothing to hide. What he didn't know was that back at his home, the Nazi operative Robert Alesh was interrogating his maid. And she was more than happy to provide as many details as she could, thinking she could help spare the doctor's life. You must think of Dr. Rousset's well-being, madame. My superiors have different methods than I. At this very moment, the good doctor is likely being flayed. Over time, bits of him become strips, and the strips become chunks. He'll be unrecognizable in a matter of hours. And you are the only one who can stop this. The maid didn't know Virginia's real name, but she knew the address of the safe house where she was staying. I can tell you where she lived. But this was information Alesh already had. He'd met Virginia there himself under his cover of Father Akon, and they'd already found that safe house abandoned. They needed to know the limping lady's current location. Rousset's maid was of no help. The Gestapo arrested Dr. Rousset and sent him to friend prison, where he'd be tortured in solitary confinement for weeks until his transfer to the Buchenwald concentration camp, where he would remain for 18 grueling months. Damn it! Enjoy your stay, Yank. Back in northern Spain, Virginia was transferred to the Miranda de Ebro prison, 
just outside the city of Figueres. It was here she encountered her new cellmate, a sex worker named Elena. Hello. Mi nombre es Elena. Mi nombre es... Marie. Elena explained that she'd been in the prison for almost six months, but her sentence would be up in a month. She was very sick, and judging by her brittle voice and fragile appearance, Virginia wasn't sure the girl was going to make it. Still, she took to the young woman and did her best to keep Elena safe and healthy. It was in Virginia's nature to be a caretaker, and the two became fast friends. As Elena's release date approached, she asked Virginia to write a letter to the American consulate in Barcelona. When I get out, I will send it for you. You cannot trust these men with anything around here. Virginia did as Elena said, penning a letter that was half a plea for help and half a coded transmission for the SOE. Elena did survive her sentence, and when she was finally released, Virginia allowed herself a morsel of hope. You can trust me, Marie. Twenty days after Virginia's arrest, a man appeared at the prison doors asking for her. He displayed a signed notice by the Spanish government for her immediate release. On December 2, 1942, Virginia was a free woman, all thanks to a sex worker named Elena. It was the first time in her career Virginia was saved by somebody else. Virginia traveled the 85 miles south to Barcelona, and from there to London, a trip made much easier with the help of the SOE, who offered direct assistance in the form of an escort with verified paperwork. On Christmas, she reunited with her friend and unofficial handler in the SOE, Vera Atkins, at a dinner party. But found herself put off by the atmosphere. The war didn't stop with the holidays, and Virginia had recently been informed of Dr. Rousset's capture and transfer to a concentration camp at the hands of Robert Alesh. She couldn't help but feel guilty. She didn't want a break or a vacation. She wanted to get back to France. She wanted to find Robert Alesh and bring him to justice. After the break, Virginia takes the fight back to the Nazis. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
you have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins. The folks that helped me bring you this show have just launched another podcast that we think you'll like. It's called War Queens. Every episode of War Queens tells the story of a fearless, powerful female leader from history. From Elizabeth Tudor and Golda Meir's high-stakes wartime gambles to Angola's Queen Najinga's willingness to shed and occasionally drink blood to defend her kingdom to Indira Gandhi's war to solve a refugee crisis and so many more. These are super engrossing stories, told by expert historians in a way that's accessible and interesting. It's great listening. Every episode of War Queens brings you the stories of extraordinary leaders, all of them legends. War Queens is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Virginia Hall's return to France would be long fought. That her face was being plastered on wanted posters all over Lyon and Paris gave the SOE pause at the idea of sending her back into the fray. She was assigned a four-month stint in Spain, where she was forced to do the grunt work of procuring safe houses for fugitives and other spies. Virginia couldn't help but feel as though her talents were being wasted. She wrote to her superior at the SOE, Colonel Maurice Buckmaster. I've given it a good four months. Anyhow, I always did want to go back to France. When I came out here, I thought that I would be able to help. But I don't and can't. I'm not doing a job. I am simply living pleasantly and wasting time. It isn't worthwhile. And after all, my neck is my own. And if I'm willing to get a crick in it because there is a war on, I do think... Well, anyhow, I put it up to you. The response from Colonel Buckmaster was less than enthusiastic. 
I know all about the things you could do, and it is only because I honestly believe that the Gestapo would also know it in about a fortnight that I say no, dearest, no. You are really too well known in the country, and it would be wishful thinking, believing you could escape detention for more than a few days. To say that Virginia was frustrated was an understatement. After all the great work she'd done and all the lives she'd saved, she was being refused access to the country where she believed she could do the most good. For the next few months in London, she stewed. With every passing day, she considered the damage Robert Alesh could be doing to the Allies. She had warned her superiors about him, but hadn't received any updates regarding his current location or actions. She had to find Alesh, and she was sick of waiting. Before she realized it, the year 1944 had rolled in. Multiple attempts to return to France were all denied by Buckmaster, and Virginia finally decided that the SOE was no longer the place for her. So OSS really was the United States' first foray into a civilian intelligence agency or service. That's Chris Costa, the executive director of the International Spy Museum. He worked as an intelligence officer for 25 years. Chris is talking about the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. We had the FBI, but we had no national intelligence capability. We had military intelligence, we had attaches in the United States, and we had a tradition of developing battlefield intelligence when it was called for. But we didn't have a civilian intelligence agency, so this was a big move. Costa explained that the Americans created the agency largely in the mold of Britain's SOE, Virginia's agency. They really did have very similar design. They had things that blew up. They also recruited agents to provide intelligence. They helped move downed aviators, aviators that were trying to escape and evade after they parachuted into enemy territory so they could get back in the fight. Virginia knew that the new American agency, the OSS, had connections with the SOE. She'd heard rumors that the OSS was hiring young agents with nothing to lose. Bold, shoot-first, ask-questions-later types that seemed to be more her speed. But the agency hadn't made it to the key countries in Europe just yet, with most of their operations up to that point taking place in North Africa and Sweden. Virginia approached Buckmaster with a new strategy. The OSS could do great work in France, but they didn't know the country. What they needed was someone who knew the grounds, someone with resistance connections, and someone experienced in undercover work. She proposed formally leaving SOE and joining the OSS. She would work entirely in disguise, and if she were captured, she would be the Americans' problem, not Britain's. Her face was known. She limped. She had a horrible accent. (laughs) There was no way she would survive, even if they were able to infiltrate her back into the country. There were too many things against her. That's Judith Pearson from earlier episodes. She's the author of the first biography of Virginia Hall, 
the wolves at the door. And so I believe she really drew on her love of the theater from when she was growing up, acting a character, which she had really been doing all along. And so why not disguise herself as an old woman? She could limp and not be caught. She could mumble and her accent not necessarily be noticed. And if she padded her clothing and dyed her hair and hunched over, she'd look nothing like the face that was on that poster. We can't say for sure if Virginia's motivations to get back into France were entirely driven by her personal need to see Robert Alesh brought to justice, but you have to imagine it was a factor. For his part, Buckmaster begrudgingly took Virginia's proposal to the OSS, and it was accepted. And so, on March 10, 1944, Virginia joined the OSS with a one-year contract. But the France that Virginia was returning to had devolved into even more violence. Here's Andrew Orr again, the military historian. German troops become more violent probably after 1943 as the sense of desperation kicks in. They become less disciplined, more willing to engage in low-scale violence. They're not shooting up Paris, but German troops are more likely to beat up and rob civilians. They are more likely to rape French women the later in the war you get. You're subject to search more often. You're more likely to be arrested on fabricated charges as the war goes along. German aggression was at an all-time high, with horrific murders taking place on the streets against French nationals, especially Jews. The Nazis had become paranoid about rebellion and uprisings. Their penchant for deportations to concentration camps had increased tenfold. On top of that, Virginia came to discover that almost the entirety of Heckler had been wiped out. Robert Alesh had succeeded in pulling apart the web of resistance she'd created. And a new French fascist paramilitary group had popped up to aid the Nazis, created by the Vichy regime and supported by the Germans. It was known as the Milice. So the Milice was founded in January 1943. So again, in those final 18 months when things are much more violent and intense in France, when the Germans have occupied by this point the, the entire territory. That's Dr. Ludovin Brock. She's a scholar of World War II French history and lecturer at the University of Westminster. It's essentially a paramilitary force of Vichy, and their mission is quite similar to that of the SS. It's to suppress especially resistors. By 1943, you know, the kind of whispers of resistance we were talking about earlier are now shouts. And the resistors are also becoming more armed, becoming more of a threat. You know, sabotage is increasing and people are getting more angry. So there's a, a very keen commitment to suppress this resistance and resistors are often portrayed by Vichy propaganda as traitors, for instance, as um, terrorists, in fact. The Milice was an anti-Semitic secret police force stuffed to the brim with amateur gang members and fascist ideologues who were French citizens and knew the people in the towns better than the Nazis ever could. Brock told us about the type of Frenchmen who joined the organization. You'd probably be from a quite radical, possibly right-winged background. You were probably a man. You were 
probably very angry. <laughs> Anti-Semitism, xenophobia, those are the kind of values which would have been important for a milician. The milice made no distinction between political enemies and personal ones. They saw Nazism as a means to eradicate everything they disagreed with or disliked in another human being. And they were growing in massive numbers daily. Virginia's hunt for Robert Alesh would have to be put on hold. After the break, Virginia Hall finds another group she sees taking on the Melise and winning. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Virginia's return to France had a rocky start. The OSS gave her a partner, codenamed Aramis, who was 62 years old, inexperienced in the field, and talkative. When he met Virginia, Aramis blurted out his entire history, his birthplace, his family, and job history, as though she was a close friend. Ah, you wouldn't believe my troubles. The sheer amount of things they are asking of me back home. Mon Dieu, as though I'm in my better years. 
I don't understand those who always see their children as babies. I've been begging for my children to stop being children for years, to grow up and take care of themselves for once. This is what I get for spoiling them. Uh, they'll serve food on the train, yes? He was loud, he had a bad knee, he was always in pain, he wanted food, he wanted to rest, he was just a pain in the derriere. First impressions meant everything to Virginia, and this guy didn't seem to know how to keep his mouth shut. He was violating the very first lesson taught by the SOE and the OSS. In the field, don't let anyone know who you really are. Virginia's primary position with the OSS was to be a radio technician, responsible for wiring and broadcasting messages about German troop movements back to London, as well as signaling locations for parachute drops. Aramis was to be centered in Paris, where he'd help develop safe houses for spies and resistance fighters in need of hiding. Notably, Virginia was to remain in disguise throughout her entire mission. She dyed her hair gray and hid it under a folded handkerchief. She doubled up on puffy clothes, sporting two wool skirts. She dressed in muted, unremarkable colors. Anything to give off the impression that she wasn't a woman in her late 30s, but closer to 60. Virginia was so committed to her new role that she had a dentist change her American fillings to more closely resemble the dental work done by the French. In fact, Brad Catling, Virginia's great-nephew, attended a CIA lecture recently and heard this. Virginia's disguise was one of the best that the CIA, or the, you know, the American intelligence had ever come up with because it was so effective and it allowed her to be in a place where she had already been burned, where her cover had already been blown. She made sure she could not be mistaken for a freedom fighter. She became someone entirely invisible in the war effort. When Virginia and Aramis first arrived in Paris by train, they were met with a ghastly sight. More of the great city was blown to bits than they'd expected. The Germans and the Malice had torn and burnt down buildings and homes, turning once lively and populated neighborhoods into ghost towns. There seemed to be no spark of life in any of the citizens who wandered the city seemingly in a haunted haze. After settling Aramis into his safe house, Virginia set off for a farm in the small village of Maidu, where she would be staying in a cottage owned by resistance member Eugene Lopinay. Virginia worked on Lopinay's farm for a few months, tending to livestock and performing other daily farm duties. She concocted a plan to sell cheese to the Nazis, hoping to get close to them and potentially overhear plans. While her disguise was good enough to fool them, she never received any helpful information to send back to London, and she quickly considered her time in the OSS wasted. She eventually transferred to the city of Cone, a few hours south of Paris, to meet a contact she hoped would leverage her talents more effectively. The contact's name was Colonel Vessereau, 
and he was the chief of police with good leadership standing in the resistance. Virginia had hoped to meet him because Vessero was in league with a new faction of French, British, and German freedom fighters, a ragtag group of men growing in numbers throughout the country, known as the Maquis. Push forward! Send these Jerry's to hell! So the Maquis is a kind of resistance guerrilla fighter. That's scholar Ludovin Brock again. She's talking about the Melise's opposite, the Maquis. There's not like a single organization. It's much more fractured, especially in its founding. It starts really in 1943 with young men who are evading the forced labor service. Starting in 1942, French men were deported to Germany to work as forced laborers for the Nazi regime. Over the course of two years, over half a million Frenchmen were sent away. This caused widespread outrage. And what they do is they end up going into hiding in the woods or in the countryside, in the mountains, and so that they don't have to be sent to, to Germany. And they live in camps and kind of rural areas, deserted farmyards, all of these things. They kind of make established homes there. These fighters sabotaged German forces and French collaborators, scrapping to get their country back. But the Maquis weren't unified in their aims. Different Maquis worked differently and had different visions. Some of them might be in favor for immediate action. So they want to immediately use their weapons, their intelligence, to carry out attacks against German forces or French and or French collaborators. Now, this kind of immediate action isn't always supported, though, because it creates retaliations and it can expose, but not really solve. So some people prefer to think that the Maquis should be more in favor of getting ready for action once the Allies are about to land and or landing. I mean, by this point, by 1943, especially by 1944, you pretty much know that if you're in active resistance and you get caught, you are going to suffer the greatest consequences. But also by that time, you will have seen so much that your commitment might be you know, stronger than ever. The Maquis were a nightmare for the Gestapo and Melisse. They were guerrilla warfare fighters who could blend in with the French citizenry and sabotage German trains, trucks, and tanks using weapons airdropped by the British. Various sections of France had their own faction of Maquis, and Virginia worked closely with the Cone Group. She was ecstatic to finally jump directly into the fight with these men, thinking she may become one of them. But Vessero had something else in mind. While the Maquis were holding their own against the German forces, they were still mostly unstructured and undisciplined. They could shoot straight and bomb efficiently, but they weren't operating in strategic terms. Vessero thought they needed someone with covert experience, someone who knew how to make a plan and execute it, down to the finest detail. Virginia, one cannot help but admire your expertise. But I have to wonder if you are being used to your fullest potential. <laughs> what were you thinking? More grunt work? <laughs> uh, not exactly. Colonel Vessero didn't want Virginia Hall to join the Maquis. He wanted her to lead them. 
coming up on the next episode of Good Assassins. Finally, on June 1st, 1944, at 9 o'clock at night, the broadcast the resistance was waiting for arrived. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. When you think of a trailblazer, she absolutely embodies it. It's someone who was willing to defy all convention. If you have any questions for us about Good Assassins, if you're curious about some aspect of Virginia Hall's story, or have any comments on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at goodassassins at diversionaudio.com. Make sure you spell assassins correctly. Again, that's goodassassins at diversionaudio.com. We'll try to answer your questions on a future episode. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Diversion Pods. Good Assassins is a production of Diversion Audio in association with iHeart Podcasts. This season is hosted by Stephen Talty and written by C.D. Carpenter. Produced and directed by Kevin Thompson for Real Jetpacks Productions. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein with editorial direction from Scott Waxman. Additional research and reporting by Sophie McNulty. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Featuring the voices of Michaela Iscardo, Rafael Corkill, Lena Klingeman, John Pierkis, Andrew Polk, Orla Cassidy, Manuel Falciano, Sean Gormley, Matthew Ament, and Steve Routman. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Paul Goodrich. Sound editing by Justin Kilpatrick. Executive producers Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Version Audio. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. 
Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.